Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show that brings you stories of real-world development from industry experts and developers like you and me. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Walleen, Craig Shoemaker, and John Papa find out what it takes to write, deploy, and maintain apps that stand up to the demands of the real world. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. This is episode 77, and we're talking about migrating the Tito web client to Vue. And Tito, wasn't Tito one of the Jackson 5 uh, brothers there, Craig? See, I was I wanted to use that joke, but you <laughs> thought of it already. So I'm I'm hoping our listeners remember the Jackson Five uh, out there. If not, definitely Google them. Quite popular, quite cool. Uh, but Tito, no, it's a great web client. I've actually used the Tito product quite a bit uh, over my time for events out there. And I'm really excited about uh, today's topic. Have you done any use any event websites, uh, Craig? Uh, not like not like Tito. Um, so yeah, this is kind of going to be a fresh look for me. So what have you used, like paper and pencil? Paper and pencil. Um, there was the tablet and chisel days, which was always a lot of fun. That would be such an yeah. amazing name of a web product. Tabletandchisel.com. <laughs> right. Sign up for events with tabletandchisel.com. <laughs> we'll have the domain uh, uh, created by the time the podcast is done recording. So, Well, we have a great guest on today to talk about this topic. The ideal guest, obviously, because we've got the uh, CEO of Tito with us, Paul Campbell. How you doing, Paul? I am very well. Thank you very much for having me. It's a privilege to be here. I'm, I think I'm three coffees and four cups of tea in, so I'm raring to go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've had a few coffees myself today, so we're going to have uh, a lively discussion going here. And for those of you out there who aren't familiar with Paul, uh, he's the co-founder and CEO of Tito, a platform for selling tickets online, optimized for great organizer, attendee, and developer experiences. Yeah. He's run a conference called FunConf on a bus in a castle and on an island and a conference called Ool, which means Apple in Irish, about what we can learn about Apple. And he loves crafting great experiences. Thanks for coming on, Paul. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we've been trying to get together for a while. I know first I think I canceled and then you canceled and then we just kind of went back and forth. But we finally got you on. And I'm glad we we're doing this show. Right. And it's so special that we did it today, completely coincidentally and out of the blue. Today happens to be the day that we're launching the product that I want to talk about the process of building. So it's a perfect day to have me on, in fact. That's awesome. And you, so you own the Tito product, which you can get to from Tito, which is ti.to on the web, right? Right. Which is quite awesome. Usually I'm used to reading these really long URLs. <laughs> so somehow you got this four letter URL. How did you manage that? Well, it's, a, it's quite a cool story, actually. So um, I started doing an events platform because I went to a lot of conferences and met lots of awesome people. And one of those people I met was somebody called Anthony Eden, and he runs a product called DN Simple, which is a domain registrar. And back in the early days where we were just bootstrapping the app and we didn't have any money, um, I said to Anthony, hey, Anthony, uh, there's this domain that is really cool. It's ti.to, it's, uh, the domain hack for our domain. Is there any chance you could help us get it? And he got it for us, paid for it. And then a couple of years later, we were selling some shares. So uh, we kind of bought it back off him for a share. So now he's a shareholder in the company wow. and we have the domain. Wow. That's pretty cool. Craig, um, you have a pretty short domain too, right? Like craigshoemaker.net? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really tiny. <laughs> no, no exciting story behind yours, Craig? 
Uh, well, the only exciting story there was that I remember being, uh, I don't know, early on in my career and, and the craigshoemaker.com domain name was available. And I was like, I should buy that, but I don't really know what I would do with it. This is 20 some years ago. And now the comedian is available at craigshoemaker.com and I'm at craigshoemaker.net and we often are, are mixed up online with each other. So. Yeah. Well, I have an interesting story. Uh, when I was younger, uh, some people called me Papa John. And some people, yeah. And this is before a pizza place really became mm. famous. And I was like, yeah, maybe I should get that domain. And I didn't. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> in a previous, wah, wah, in a previous wah. life, one of my colleagues, uh, number, well, obviously tiny URL still exists, but Craig, you just reminded me, he registered and created a URL shortening service at really tiny URL.com. <laughs> really tiny URL. <laughs> that is awesome. So with Tito, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this today was you have a story about how you migrated the Tito web client up towards uh, Vue.js. Right. And wanted to talk about not only, you know, the successes of doing that, but why did you choose Vue and what was it on before and kind of what were those challenges? Yeah, it's a it's a really long, good, convoluted story. The So the prefix here is I, I do love JavaScript and I love what JavaScript has brought to the web and it's brought an awful lot of joy to my life. And again, it starts with conferences for me. I was at the JSConf, I think I've spoken before, of, uh, where Node was, was announced on the world. So uh, JavaScript brings a lot of joy to my life. And when I wrote the initial version of Tito in 2012, 2013, it was basically like spaghetti coffee script and any ideas that came into my head, I would just add them into single files. And it was sort of organized because Rails sort of lets you organize coffee script into files, but there was, there was no convention. And it was just, most things were just huge 800 or thousand line files. And when it came to rewriting the dashboard, um, Turbolinks, I think Turbolinks, the, the five maybe was was just released. And it was sort of promising to take all the pain away from JavaScript development. And I was buying in. The The Rails manifesto had just been written. And I really liked the idea, the ideas behind that, which was giving superpowers to a small team. Because at the time, it was me and a fellow developer working on this product that was processing millions in ticket sales every, every, mo every month. And so I decided to rewrite basically the whole admin backend. And part of that was replacing all of the spaghetti coffee script and all this custom stuff with Turbolinks because Turbolinks was how Rails was saying you should do JavaScript as in don't do any JavaScript and then add in little sprinkles. And it was also at the time that Rails was migrating toward Webpack. And Webpack to me seemed like an amazing thing to solve the problems of spaghetti code because you could uh, you could use ES5 and you could use uh, common JS modules, you could use proper modules, you could use proper imports, and it seemed very attractive to me at the time. So just about the time I got things sort of working in Turbolinks, I started adding little sprinkles of, well, extra JavaScript. And I suddenly started feeling like, my JavaScript file was like I had a single JavaScript file because I thought I was only going to be doing sprinkles. It felt like it was getting big. And then yeah, I think like we've was... all been down that road where, you know, ah, oh, there's just a little bit more, a right. little bit more. Right. And then suddenly you look back and you're like, what Frankenstein have I created? And I, it felt like I was just going down the same path. The only problem was this was in 2016 
and I've already said that it, it's this project shipped today, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is February. It's been a few moons. <laughs> February 2020. So um, there has been a lot of water under the bridge since. And what happened was from that point, it, it sort of felt like going down the Turbolinks route wasn't wasn't right. So we started we started trying to keep up with the latest technology. And I think if you've ever been on that path, that's not really a good path to follow either. Um, and then life got in the way. Uh, there was a baby to look after. There was the existing business to support. It was growing. There was new employees who had to learn the whole stack as it was being written. And so it really was a case of trying to build the the, the plane, build a jet as it was moving. But we did finally settle on view and we gradually then decided to go all in on a single page app approach. So now you're looking at, if, if I could make sure I look at today's picture, what's launching today is a Ruby on Rails backend mm -hmm. with a Vue.js client? Yes. And so what, how, what started to appear as things were going on, as long as we were building this, was that we were we felt like we were building a very nice API. And we'd never actually provided a read-write API to any of our customers before. And a lot of our customers were developers, and we were never able to give them a great experience. So the, the thesis was, we're building for developers. We want the API to be, we all want the API for developers to be as good as the one that we're using to power our app. So we might as well make that as good as we possibly can. So we sort of forked the project into two, where on the one hand, we were building this world-class REST API. And then on the other hand, we were building a single page app that would consume the REST API, just so that we, we knew that if we were giving developers tools to build on, that those are the tools that we were building on ourselves. So we kind of went whole hog on the the, the dream to provide a, a, a first-class API and a completely separate uh, UI with, I mean, the, the other parts were that in, in being a stickler for detail, I wanted the roots to work almost exactly like they had done in Rails and I wanted everything to, I wanted the back button to work correctly. I, want, I basically wanted it to never feel like it was a single page app, which adds gotcha. an extra level of, of complexity to the whole process. So to provide some perspective for those who haven't used it yet, can you kind of describe the experience and, and what you do with Intito? Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. So John, one of the things I like about AG Grid, which is a, a data grid component for the kind of complex uh, grid scenarios that we encounter all the time in enterprise apps. One of the things I really like about it is that it works for a variety of frameworks, Angular, React, Vue, or, or just vanilla JS. Does that ring a bell for you? Oh, it really does. There's all these different companies that I work with where they have no choice but to use a lot of these different tools because they have different teams working on them. So being able to port their code or share that code and that technical investment they have is really important to them. Yeah, well, it's important to us, uh, ideally, we're a consulting company. And, uh, you know, we never know what our client's going to want to use, Angular, React, Vue, but they're all going to need a grid. And it's great to be able to reach for uh, the one grid that works everywhere, AG Grid. You know, at, at any size company, too, because you could have these teams that maybe they only use one framework, but eventually they're going to switch to another one and be able to take that investment again and use it, reuse it is really nice. So if a multi-framework data grid makes sense to you, please go check out AG Grid at ag-grid.com. And we're back. So you were going to describe kind of what that experience was like, Paul. Go for it. Yeah. So 
I always find these kind of moments quite grandiose where you're trying to describe what is effectively a fancy user interface on top of a database. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, the, there were a few things that I wanted of the user interface. And um, one thing that TurboLinks is definitely good enough at for 99% of apps is when you click something, something happens in a timely enough manner. But for me, what I wanted was if you clicked something, that something would happen instantly without ever going to the server. And this was just an idiosyncrasy of what I wanted of this UI. I didn't necessarily have a good reason for it other than that I wanted something to happen. As soon as you click something, the UI would change. And in order to do that consistently and reliably, in my opinion, you're sort of leaning on pre-compiled UI components that are sent in on the JavaScript layer. That's not true because some TurboLinks experiences feel like they're being rendered instantly. So I totally don't want to go down the, the, the track of defending that decision, but that was just something I wanted at the time. Um, so a, an extremely responsive um, UI. Then the other thing is that it the, the UI that we provide is the, the tweet bot, tweety, Twitter client, um, three pane view, Apple mail, where there's a menu and then there's a, a list in the middle and then there's a pane on the right that opens, which means that there's basically three states to maintain within the app. So there's the menu and where you're at. Then there's the the, the list of items. Um, I guess in some UIs it's called the list pane and then the, or the master pane and then the view. And then there's the view and being able to edit. And basically this three pane UI, bite me on it, I don't think is a good candidate for the TurboLinks model where the entire page is being refreshed on every request. So what I wanted then eventually was basically I wanted to keep the state of the list consistent so that people could click and the the right-hand pane of the page would update independently. And when I got to view, it felt to me that apart from being really, really easy to integrate when I was still on the TurboLinks model, every time I needed to add an extra level, whether it be the data layer or whether it be the routing or whether or as routing, as you say, in the United States, um, whether it be every level, it felt that there were, was already a tool there built for the use case. So I just found that as, as I was putting everything together to bring in this responsiveness, handling of the state of separate components, Vue already had a, a, a tool available and it was always very, very straightforward to integrate. And I really liked that. I, it felt like the tool on the client side was supporting me in ways that I had always felt that Rails supported me in the server side and indeed on the client side in a very Rails way. So, it so, felt so let like, me see if I, I follow you here, Paul. Sorry, sorry for interrupting. Um, hmm. So TurboLinks, I, I'm not as familiar with Ruby, but it looks like TurboLinks is basically a, a mechanism to intercept all the clicks, the links yeah, on the I, page and then replace the content with, you know, something that exactly. Ruby would... Sort of from Ajax. It was called PJAX, I think, was a, a, a term coined by one of the founders of GitHub to describe okay. what was going. It's like progressive Ajax, where you just swap in the whole page. And uh, actually, I'll defer now. There was a, a tweet from a few days ago that went around by one of the former GitHubers, Zach Coleman, um, which I think is almost wor worth reading verbatim, where he says, like, I feel, si I, I feel silly saying all this since the last time I gushed this much about Rails was in 2005, but at least personally, I've been getting so far in the weeds of all this admittedly really cool stuff in JavaScript land, but like never stopped to ask if we should. And then he says, anyway, go build really cool shit on top of really boring shit and make money. <laughs> 
So, so in the app, you're using TurboLinks now, but are, and let me kind of break this out. So when somebody clicks on a link, are you then rendering the page and view server side and then and using TurboLinks to pull it over? Or did you, or are you using the view routing engine now for those links? Like, how did you decide to handle right. that? Yeah. So the initial rebuild of the app was TurboLinks. Um, as per the, the, if you just do a, a default Rails app new, you get TurboLinks by default. Um, everything is rendered server-side. All the HTML is rendered server-side and it just does these page refreshes. And I put up a demo of it and sent it to one of our customers and he his response was like, hey, did you just rewrite the whole thing in React? And I was like, dude, this is, this is good. But I did like at the edges and it turned out there were a ton of edges. It, it just, it wasn't filling the needs for that kind of UI that I, I was talking about. And so the, the app that we're shipping today is, yeah, it's a straight up single page app with view. When you load the initial page, there's no HTML content. It ships off. Um, it gets the webpack pack. It's all chunked. So it, tr- it tries to download as, as little as possible to get you a UI as soon as possible. And then it goes off and it pulls JSON from the API. And then it obviously sticks it all together. Um, and then the, 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 the state is from view router and it basically maps back to all of the equivalent Rails routes that are powering the API. So That's for true. you, when you made this change, what was the, the hardest mental model to shift between the way you were going about it and the way you finally implemented it with Vue? Oh, it's such a good question. There probably wasn't a direct shift because as I said, as I was, as I was adding more complexity to the app, it felt like there was always a natural progress. The, the most difficult piece to get my head around was Vue-X. Um, and that was definitely the most challenging piece to figure out the... I guess the asynchronous nature of how Vuex works, and I'd done a little bit of that building, uh, like throwaway apps on on Apple platforms, and um, where you've got a completely separate data layer, and the data layer is completely independent of the UI, and you update the data layer, and the UI updates. And if you can get that working in a way that feels elegant, and oftentimes it doesn't, but if you can get that in a way that feels elegant, where you just change the data, and the UI just does what it's supposed to do. It does feel like magic in a way that no other, no other programming has ever. Yeah, made yeah. I'd love to stop you there for a sec. I'm, I'm curious. It's it's amazing to me that you got into Vue and you know using the Vue router or Vue I can totally grab, but you immediately jumped into Vuex. Definitely not immediately, but I just started running into the issues that appeared in the documentation that I had kind of glossed over initially. So I was like, hey, I've got a component here that depends on this bit of data, but I've got this other piece that depends on that other piece of data. And I wonder like how, what is the proposed solution to that? And then I, yeah. How do you pass data between all these disparate components? Yeah. Right. And then I was like, what's this view X thing and what's, what's flux and what's flex and what are these patterns? And then I was like, Oh, and then I was like, Oh, I know this from, from my fledgling Apple days where there's a completely, it's just, oh, there's state. And then there's like, oh, okay, go, oh, I've got it. And then, that was the mental model that I really had to build. Um, and it, it happened very slowly and then quickly. And once I got it, I was like, okay, this is, this is, this is magical. And this will probably be, this will probably be simple in 10 years, but right now it's great. I like that slowly and then quickly. Right. Was this easy for you? I'm curious. With, with Vuex, did you find that implementing Vuex was natural when you first got into it? Absolutely not. 
Absolutely. And, and what about that? Like, cause I, I think in one way you may, you said, you know, view was easy to get started and, mm-hmm. and made sense to you. Vue X uh, seemed to appeal to you from the sense of it handled the, the problem that you're, that you encountered. Yeah. But what was the unnatural part? I guess because you need to create buckets in your head for where the, where there's, where there's data and then where there are these, they sort of feel archaic, the the different functions that you need to implement in the Vuex store to get Vuex to do what it's designed to do, which is to track changes in state and react accordingly. But yeah, you the have, actions and the methods and all that kind of stuff. Right. And then yeah. and then some of it feels a little bit too much like magic, but I kind of got I got that from my experience in Rails, where when you pick up Rails on day one, you can be productive almost instantly but it's it, it it may take a long time before you actually understand what's going on under hood under the hood to enable that magic so i did feel compelled to go and figure out what what was actually happening and i did find that the the developer tools and the the vuex um plugin for chrome really helps with that because it gives oh, yeah. you a visual representation of what's happening you i'm glad you and, called that out that mm. the developer tools for view in chrome are absolutely you know, essential. If you're going to do view application development, I think you have to have those. Yeah. And uh, th- th- being able to see that visually of what's going on is a, is a great help. And also like how you, showing you how you can mess up really easily and like make w- like one line of code that then just triggers all these changes and you're, you're making a hundred changes by accident because you you left out one little piece or whatever. Um, really, really helpful. So that, that helped a lot. And then being able to see your components um, in a drill down and to be able to see the state of each component really helps as well inside the few developer tools. What kind of data did you, I'm curious, in the business problem of all this, so this is an event management site, people mm-hmm. buy tickets, they post their events. What kind of data did you feel like needed to span multiple components that you needed Vuex for? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the UI, as I say, is three panes. So you've got your, it's, uh, I guess it's, it's nothing revolutionary. So you've got your master navigation and you've got a list of, let's say, tickets uh, and then when you click into a ticket detail page, you've got the price. So it, it's things like you click on edit and on the page, when you click on edit, the a modal comes up so that you can you can change anything. So now the state of the same ticket is on the list. It's on the, the view. It's also on the edit view and they're all on the page at the same time. So when you hit save, it goes off to the server. It, it updates the server, which is obviously the, the, the central source of, of state. Um, but you want to be able to update the view and update the the list component at the same time. And to me, being able to do that, like you could, there's, there are lots of different ways to do that, but being able to do that in a way where the, the save form disappears and then the view updates and then the list item updates all at the same time, it, there's a part of our company ethos is bringing delight to our customers, which is like adding value where people didn't expect it. And just avoiding that round trip to the server, avoiding to that loading of like being able to, when you hit save, there's a little delay and then everything updates instantly. It's so simple, but there's just the way that it does it is, is uh, to me, it's delightful. And that's really the difference, right? Between server side pages like Ruby or ASP.net or JSP or whatever we've used on the server, right? When we generated our UIs as well from there is when you press save on some kind of a page in the, uh, with server side, you're then sending the whole thing back to the server. It's got to process it, which we're going to have to do anyway. But instead of sending it through, uh, in that case, you're sending the whole form of the page through and it's got to re-render the results of, hey, congratulations, you bought a ticket. Versus with the spa or like with the view model here, um, view meaning V-U-E, <laughs> hmm. you're staying on the page. You're still sending the data back to the server to an API in Ruby, I assume. Mm-hmm. 
and then that's processing it. And then the response comes back to the same visual on the screen. And then something changes inside your screen that say, hey, you successfully bought a ticket. Right. Uh, it's just a different user experience. And Well, um, I, I hesitate to bring in user experience because to me, it feels like it's a lot easier to mess it up on this model. And view, in the view model, in right? the view model. Yeah, yeah. Because like browsers are really good at the server side model. It, it, submitting forms and getting a full response back it, using HTTP form posts and a server response and validations on server side. All of that is really reliable. And it's stuff that's been around since the nineties and been iterated on. So it, it, I'm definitely aware that there's a, there's, you're taking on a challenge and that's why I feel like it, it ought to be a very, very, intentional decision to put the work in to use the tools that allow you to provide this this enhanced user experience at the edge of the experience this isn't to get the basics right and that's what it was like we i built that first version in 2016 it got the basics right but the decision i made at the time was we already had an app that was doing that in our legacy version and i just i felt like i just wanted something more but i mean We've put in three years of work to get there. Now, it's not three clock years to do it, but it, it, I think it's important to bear in mind that I think if you're going to do this, the user experience is a separate concern, that the tool does not provide a better or necessarily more delightful user experience out of the box. But there is the potential, I think, to provide transcendent experiences ahead of the server-side model where it's appropriate using these kinds of tools. Yeah, you make you make some really good points because uh, it's not that one is better than the other server side or you know spa, uh, which we don't. It's funny we don't really say the word spa a whole lot <laughs> these days anymore. <laughs> I wouldn't go around saying it in Ireland. It's a bit of a derogatory term in Ireland. Oh, is it? <laughs> so let's call it SPA, right? <laughs> <laughs> For all the Irish listeners, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, and you you come from you live in Dublin. Is that where you live? Right. Uh, yes, I'll actually be in Dublin this summer, so I'll, re- I'll remember not to say spa. <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. In Ireland, we say spa. <laughs> but it definitely, it's not, it's funny, you know, uh, several years ago, that's what we called all this stuff. But I think the term has kind of become lesser mentioned now. And I don't think it's changed so much as it is. I think front-end development is really kind of, that's really what we talk about now. It's just a front-end app or front-end framework, right? Right. And it, uh, the the kinds of not necessarily better user experiences, I feel, are are all over the place. And there's not a day goes by where I feel like somebody has used or maybe not completed a full user experience on one of these, um, using one of these tools. And I, you, the danger is that they're using the tools for the tools use for the sake that the tool is there rather than to create a better user experience. You're trying to tell me that sometimes developers pick a tool because they want to, as opposed to there's actually a good business use case for it. I could never, ever suggest that about that. <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened ever. One of the questions I had was as you've pushed more of your logic to the browser, how are you handling when things go wrong? That's a really good question. Wait, things go wrong on Tito? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess we were already somewhat handling that because in a way, the previous iteration, the legacy app was sort of pseudo SPA. We're, I guess not very, not very well. Um, there is a validation layer that sends back errors in JSON. And, uh, and we've I, we kind of built a pseudo Rails inspired thin um, view component hierarchy that, that 
accepts layers as a res- or sorry accepts errors as a response and then does the right thing based on that for application errors we, we probably could do a, an awful lot better one of the great potentials of this model i thought was being able to do error handling better or in a more in, in a in a better way so i guess an example of that was would be back in the day before we had bigger servers and maybe a more low tested setup when people were buying tickets from time to time traffic would overwhelm our servers and javascript requests to to buy tickets or to update ticket details would fail and at the moment i think we just we we pop up an alert and the page refreshes maybe to, and hopefully it'll get through next time. And it feels to me, that's it, I mean, it works. It's that's going back to traditional server. Just keep retrying. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And one of my dreams, and we haven't done a, a great job of it now is, is to maybe implement a better user experience for, for retrying in a considered way with a, a client side app. And I see there's potential there to do that, but I guess I can, I'm going to just defer and say, we're not doing a really great job of handling when things go wrong, but we, we are, are you mentioning like retrying, like uh, somebody's trying like an HTTP request retry? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what happens if the app returns a 500 when, when somebody can't get a ticket, a, bit, a, a more kind of tangible example could mm-hmm. be when tickets are locked, which is not necessarily an application error because I feel like when there's an application error of a database is down or if there's a if a caching system is down or whatever that's effectively things aren't working and you're tr- trying to disappoint people nicely. <laughs> yeah, you, you basically take that error and you go, "Uh-oh, how can I tell the user nicely to try again later?" Exactly. <laughs> and I feel like there are creative ways that this pushing pushing the application to the client can do that because you could push the error handling to the client. So it's there in case something happens where you're, where you can do a series of, of HTTP retries. But one, one thing that I want to explore is the idea of when an event is at potential capacity, but people haven't completed their purchases yet, which we call it, the event is locked and nobody ever knows what locked means and they think that there's something wrong so you've got a hundred you've got a hundred <laughs> tickets you've sold 90 there are 10 left and there are 10 people trying to buy one ticket each but they haven't filled in they haven't filled in their credit card details or whatever so nobody can buy tickets because these 10 people have to complete their purchases but they may they may drop off in the future so it's locked but it's not necessarily it's not necessarily that you won't you might still get a ticket because some of these might drop off and it feels to me that with component-based javascript tools like this it would be a lot more straightforward to build a system that would handle that case elegantly, where maybe we create a queue on the server side and we give a a really nice message to say, um, you're in a queue, hang around for for now, there's like 30% ahead of you and maybe there's like a, you have a 20% chance of getting this if you keep your browser open. And I know that that has always been possible with JavaScript. It just feels to me that I would consider building that kind of a flow now much quicker than I would than in the past where I feel like it would be a, a thousand lines of of really spaghetti logic to get to that point where it's retrying and checking on the server and moving data and checking the state of this and that and the other whereas I feel like in my mind I can build that client-side app that I would ship over as part of the checkout process and have a really elegant way of handling that situation instead of what we do now which is just to say 
the sticker is not available, but check back in 15 minutes. Yeah, I think you, I've seen this problem. At least it, what's triggering my head as you're explaining it is I book a lot of airline flights because I travel uh, quite a bit. And when I book these flights, a lot of times I feel like I get so far down the path of booking a flight, something goes wrong and it's, it's you know, the flight is like locked or uh, in your terms or on hold or it's being reserved for me because you have like that five to 10 minute window. And then I have to start over from scratch. I go through the same thing and suddenly the ticket isn't there. And you're like, oh man. And then you're starting guessing as a developer, I'm guessing how long does airline X have my ticket on hold or lock? Then you're like, I'm trying back every five minutes to see what's right. coming out this, of there. But this is exactly why that was such a good question. Because as I say, like th th there's things going wrong, which is an application error or whether the system's down and all you're doing is disappointing. But there are, there are other ways for things to go wrong that happen really regularly that in the past you may not have considered building a solution to, and you just defer to like clearing the session and starting again, which is basically where we're at at the moment. But I'm hoping that because these tools, particularly Vue in my case, exist, I'm considering building solutions that, are, that, that, that help people handle these edge cases that are not even edge cases, these disappointment cases better. And I'm really excited about the potential for building tools that do that. So tell us, switching gears a little bit, uh, I'd love to hear about what your, you know, what was the most delightful thing that you found in using Vue? Now let's take a quick break from our work from our sponsors. Are you building a web application? Need to deliver it soon and don't have the people to do it? Maybe you're not sure your company has the skill set or experience to do it. And maybe we can help. I'm your host, Ward Bell, and my day job is building applications for companies like yours. I don't do it alone. I'm president of IdeaBlade, a consultancy that specializes in enterprise web application development. We're particularly strong in Angular, RxJS, NGRX Redux on the front end, and .NET Microsoft technologies on the server. We're a small, tight-knit group of people handpicked by me for their expertise, experience, integrity, and team spirit. Maybe we can help you with architectural guidance and hands-on development. And if there's something we don't know, and in our field, really, there's too much to know, we can draw on our personal connections in the Microsoft RD, MVP, and Google GDE networks, as well as our international circle of really great developers, people we know and trust personally. If you've got a project that's keeping you up at night, shoot us an email at info at ideablade.com. That's info at ideablade.com. And now back to the show. And we're back. So what is the most delightful thing that you found about Vue uh, through your experience? Maybe something that surprised you. It, at, at risk of taking 24 hours to get to an answer, I'm going to go for the first thing that came into my head there when you said that, which is the moment that I realized that you could compose components and encapsulate their own logic inside them. That was probably the, the moment that I was totally on board with the notion of what Vue provides. Because I felt like for so long, I had been reaching for ways to cleanly say, if you click this button, then you should do this. And I didn't know where to put the tiny piece of code to say that this is what happens when you click a button. And now I could, I could wrap that button in. I could call the button, whatever, continue button. I don't know if that's a good name, but at least I could, I could call it the continue button. It is now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then... And then I could say, when you click the continue button, call this function that's only like 10 lines below it. And then, and then what really got me was that the function doesn't do anything. All it does is change the state. And then 
that was the bit that was like, oh, this is this makes so much sense, and this is what I've been wanting. I know I I don't want to I don't want to tell the button what to do. I want to tell the app what to change. Yeah. And so that was a that was just a I rem, like I don't remember the exact moment, but I remember the change in my brain that just accepted that and just. That's when you pushed away from the desk and looked up longingly into the sky. Oh my goodness, that was so it, yeah. And the sky was blue, <laughs> and the sun, the, the Monty Python sun came down and then squashed me. <laughs> so so what about the time where you felt like you wanted to hit your head into a monitor, something yeah, frustrated I, you? Yeah, I, I remember that. So, and that was... <laughs> There's always one of those. Absolutely. <laughs> and that was probably a year ago where I realized that, what we ought to have built was a new app and not tried to transition this monster 150 model app from Spaghetti Legacy to something new. And what we have now is a an app that is almost feature for feature at parity with the legacy. It's completely compatible with the same database. The transition for customers is is completely effortless and pretty well everything you could do on the legacy app, you can do on the new app. So it was a big project, but I remember the moment where I realized that the transition was going to be a nightmare. That was just, and it, was, it wasn't anything really to do with Vue. It was to do with our approach to transitioning and trying to get certain bits off of jQuery, trying to get certain bits off of, uh, custom backbone, trying to get just these the, the long custom functions and try to get them and to change them into the model. And it, it's not Vue's fault, but Vue wants you to do things so differently to that old model. Right. And that that was the moment where I realized that we weren't going to ship in March and we probably wouldn't ship by June and this was probably going to take another year. <laughs> and I didn't want to believe it at real the time, business, but I think I knew. I mean, hmm? th- these are real business problems. Like, I, I haven't worked on a whole lot of projects. I have worked on many, but, you know, not... There's a good number of them. Be interesting to go back and look at them all and see how many of them that didn't finish on time. Hmm. You know, for whatever reasons, uh, whether it was, you know, scope creep, that's always a big one, right? But, but often it's usually just stuff that you just didn't know that you didn't know. Right. <laughs> there was no way to account for. Right. And, you know, every business goes through this. And then you have to make a decision. Do we ship anyway? Because, you know, we've got some business reason we have to. Mm-hmm. Or do we extend this out? And I'm curious, when you had that choice, like, how did you weigh that? I just, like, I went to my business partner and said, I mean, okay, well, I have a business partner. I own the company. It's it's ultimately my decision, so I'm not answerable to anybody. So there was nobody putting pressure on on me. I'm I'm some degree a perfectionist, some degree a pragmatist, and some degree things were okay because we already had an app that was serving customers and processing millions of dollars. So we we knew that the the worst we could fall back on was what we had already. But every couple of months, the question came up was like, should we cancel the project? And we just, we just looked at each other and said, no, we, we saw the light at the end of the tunnel and it just, it, it did keep inching away from us, but we, we just kept making the decision to stick with it. And I think looking back, I don't think it was the right or the wrong decision, but we got through it and we've learned so much and I think it will stand to us. And we're not we're not building a hyper growth company. We're not building a, a company to flip in a year or whatever. It's like we're not under massive time pressure. We're in our minds, we're committed to this for 10, 20, 30 years. And so taking three years to to rewrite it in the at the end of the the noughties or whatever, 
<laughs> it's, <laughs> I'm hoping it's going to just be a, a fun memory in the back, but I appreciate that not everybody has that luxury. Yeah. Every business is, is so different. Like I, I've been in some situations where it's got a ship, you know, hell or high water, it's going out the door, uh, right. just make something that functions. And I've been in situations where it's like, it's got to be right. And, you know, and you take an extra year because that's what those things mm-hmm. require. And the decisions that go into that to me, I mean, not everybody has a luxury of, um, you know, deciding on their own. A lot of times they have to go run it up the flagpole, go talk to your boss, your development boss, your business leaders, your CEO, your customers. Uh, and that's, it's a lot of things to consider. And I appreciate you sharing all that with us because, uh, it's, it's interesting to hear that, you know, not everything was 100% smooth and like, yeah, we went to view and it was amazing. And I learned everything in five seconds and the app shipped in two days. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> I, I love view, but <laughs> it's not view we're talking about. It's, it's right. this could be Angular, React or PHP for all we care, but yeah. the real world. it's Absolutely. the real world. Um, and I guess like the one, the, the things that I, that kept us going was that even, even as we were developing it wasn't a case that it was just sitting there doing nothing at, at an early point we were able to start onboarding a couple of forgiving customers who would forgive things not working here and there uh, we we were able to start to, to ship the api that powered it all much much earlier they were able to slowly onboard some subset of your customers onto the api and the ui exactly and so the, we're going to ship those having had quite long user test like real user usage um, I won't say testing, but having had real, real world. <laughs> Don't tell your customers that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I think the customers who used it were very, very on board with what was what was happening, and they were yeah. appreciative to get early access. All that stuff, like there, there, there were pieces that kept us going and and bought us time as we were going along. Now that's great. Hey, Paul, thank you so much for coming on today. And I also wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your product launch today. Like, what's what's new? What's what's coming out? Yeah, so it's it's the version of our dashboard that's powered by this new API and is powered, as we've discussed, by these uh, this view framework. Um, it's it's basically a reimagining rather than a complete rewrite of the app. It feels faster, and objectively, it is faster. Um, everything just kind of feels more polished. We put a lot of attention into into the to the UI and the user experience, and we've tried to take advantage of the tools that Vue gives us to to add little sprinkles of of detail. For example, when you're changing the the tax rate on a ticket, for example, the you get a little preview of of how that's going to affect affect things. And these are the kind of like little UI affordances and helpful things that we want to keep adding to the app. And that's kind of why we reached for the full framework that we could we could add. That everything is everything feels snappy and responsive in all this in all the sections of the app. So we're, I'm just really really excited that it's live. It's been a really successful launch. Like it's take it's take, it's a long time coming, but we've had no complaints or issues or bugs reported in the first day. So I'm just really excited to get the blog post out to announce it, to ship it to existing customers. It's going to be available to existing customers uh, concurrent with with new users, but we're doing a, a smooth transition. So we're not going to switch over everybody immediately. Um, I'm really proud that like we're such a small team. We've got three engineers, 10 total in the company, that we've been able to do this extremely mature um considered smooth launch and i'm just yeah i'm i'm proud i'm happy i'm excited and i'm really most excited about building new stuff on top of this new platform awesome congratulations thank you 
It's funny, yeah, because we we had no idea, uh, nor did you when we first scheduled this. This was going to be the day that it launched that we did this recording of the <laughs> podcast. But uh, and I think by the time this airs and folks listen, it'll be about five weeks in their past. So uh, you'll definitely be able to try out the new site and read the blog post that uh, Paul's writing up for everybody. Absolutely. Hey, Paul, thanks again for coming on here. And we'd like to end our show with a final thought that we leave our audience. And this can be on any topic that you wish. What's your final thought for everybody? Well, my final thought is something that I think is very important and close to my heart. Uh, during the whole journey that I talked about of building this this view rewrite, um, my wife and I had two kids. And in the last uh, couple of months, I've started a podcast with a friend called Mike McQuay called Balancing Dads. And it's at balancingdads.com. And I just wanted to leave you with the thought that all of this is in perspective and uh, family is very much first. And I would always advocate that um, kids come first. And I just want to, I just, I just want to encourage everyone to not worry about JavaScript and go and play with your kids. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget those kids. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely concur with that. Uh, it's, actually, I hadn't heard of it. I'm going to go check that out too, because I'm it's, always balancing that myself. I have four children. Super yeah. low key, but maybe you can come as a guest sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. Craig, you've got more kids uh, than I do, so you should go on there too. Uh, yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> I, well, it, it's it's funny um, that you all this came up because uh, this uh, two or three days ago, on the same day, I took the training wheels off my daughter's bike and I was teaching my son how to drive. So that was a stress-filled but very fun and joyful day. Wow. And, and I absolutely agree with you about the importance of family and kids, and it's uh, it's the best thing. And Craig, what's your final thought for everybody? That was it. That was it. Okay. Well, I didn't want to preempt you. No, <laughs> that was a good right. final thought. But it was, it was, honestly, it was a, a, one of those moments where I just kind of stepped back and, and was like, this is such a cool and, and amazing experience to be able to do these two very significant things all on the same day with, with two of my own kids. That's pretty cool. You know, my final thought is, it's ironic, again, that you, you mentioned this, is last night, I have a 10 year old son and I was teaching him to cook his own dinner mm -hmm. uh, and for something very simple. He was, you know, he's boiling noodles and, you know, putting butter and cheese and salt and stuff onto it and just cooking his own meal. But uh, it's something I, I remembered. I'm like, you know, when I was a kid, my mother, you know, encouraged us to do these things. Uh, and we did this at an early age. And I was like, wow, have I done a bad job at raising my child? Because he has no idea. Like if I wasn't in this room, would he just not eat? Like, how's that going <laughs> to work out? <laughs> but it was, it was actually a really fun experience. He was excited. I was excited. There was a little bit of anxiety from him. I could tell if, you know, am I doing this right? You know, using the stove, is mom going to hate me for touching it? <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, mom's going to love you for doing this. And it was just a really rewarding experience. So my final thought is definitely try to find uh, little things that are, uh, you know, enjoyable experiences for you and your children. Uh, not just the, the amazing things like the vacations, but uh, just those little moments in life. Mm, that's so nice. And if you don't have kids, that's totally cool too. Yeah. You can Absolutely. also do it with your pets or your friends, or if you, you don't have anybody else, you can always call Craig and, and he'll come over and you can do it with Craig. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> hey everybody thank you again for listening to yet another week of real talk javascript you'll hear from us every tuesday morning thanks for listening to real talk javascript 
This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealtalkJS.